The following audio is from Morningstar Baptist Church in Dayton, Ohio. For more information about Morningstar, visit MorningstarDayton.org. You can be seated. Amen. Well, good morning once again. Um, I'm going to be a good husband this morning, and I'm not going to tell you that Mandy turned 40 today. So I'm not going to tell you that. Um, so, because I'm just a good husband like that, and that's just what we do. So, anyway, well, happy birthday, Mandy, anyway. Um, so, yeah, you know you love me. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> she hates it when I do that. Hey, um, I, I'm, gonna, I'm glad you're here, man, and this is, this is an exciting day. And I, I wanted to share a story with you that honestly really has nothing to do with uh, what we're talking about today, but it's just something I found funny. Maybe you will, I don't know. But, um, so Daniel, my middle son, at Christmas time, he got a drone one of those flying drones for Christmas, and we didn't really fly it through the winter because it was stinking cold here and windy like the whole time until about a couple weeks ago, and we got outside. And as a good dad, I'm reading through the instructions, and I take the drone outside, and like every dad does, what do we do? All right, let me try it out first so I can show you, right? And so I'm flying it. I'm doing okay. I just, I'm not really getting the hang of it, but I'm just pretending like I am. Daniel's being very patient with me and watching me as I do this, even though he probably knows how to do it. And I'm flying it. So then it lands, and I'm like, I'm going to see how high I can get it. And so I start it up, and I get it up super high, but the problem is it's not responding to the controls anymore. And now it's starting to drift. And it's drifting away. I can't get it to turn around. I can't get it to come down. I can't get it to do anything. And apparently I find out because I'm just like moving the toggles like crazy. And apparently if you move both of them down in the same direction at the same time, it shuts the drone off and it just comes straight down. I didn't read that part of the directions. And the problem was as it was coming straight down, our neighbor lives kind of catty corner to us on the corner. His son was visiting him and his son drives a very nice BMW car. And the drone came down and it crashed right on top of the car, like really hard. And as any good dad does, I took the controller and I handed it to Daniel. <laughs> I said, but you have to go talk to them. <laughs> like, but because that's just the kind of dad that I am. But I just like, I was like, oh man, now we got to go over there. And so I'm trying to tell Daniel, when you get over there and you knock on the door, I'm just kidding. I went over and I knocked on the door, met our neighbors, not the way I wanted to meet them. Thankfully, it didn't cause any damage to the BMW or we'd be taking up a special offering this morning. So, uh, so we're good. But it's just like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I didn't, but then you hand it to Daniel and the guy, the kid just takes off flying like crazy. He makes it, does, it does flips and stuff. And I, whatever. So he just knows. I don't know. But it was just funny. I thought it was funny. I thought I'd share it with you. If you don't think it's funny, it's okay. Check your heart. All right. So uh, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be at this morning. Last week we started a series called The Mountain. And, and it was super cool as we walked through what Jesus had this conversation, this sermon on the side of a mountain why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And in the first 12 verses, Jesus answered the question of what a follower of him looks like. I'm not going to preach the whole sermon so don't get all sweaty and, and nervous and stuff. But basically we talk about how a follower of Christ is, is someone who's poor in spirit. We realize apart from God we have nothing, we are nothing. A follower of Christ is someone who mourns over our own sin. Our sin bothers us. And we hate our sin in ourselves more than we hate the sin in other people. That a follower of Christ is meek. It doesn't mean they're weak. It just means that we're submissive to God. We're easily moldable when he starts working in our life. We don't fight back against him. And we walk through all of them of what a follower of Christ looks like. And in verse 13 through 16, where we're going to be out this morning, Jesus moves from talking about who we are to what we do. 
And he answered the question of who we are as a follower of Christ. And now he tells us what we do as a follower of Christ. What our purpose in this life is. And I find it really interesting in, the verse, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 through 10, Jesus uses the language like this. Blessed are they, blessed are those, blessed are the. Kind of third person language. But then when he gets to, to verse 10, uh, excuse me, in verse 11, he stops saying the words those, they, and the, and he uses the word you. We get to verse 11, he says, blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you. And, and then he, through verse 13 and 14, he's still using those words you. Because he's switching from this general idea of what a follower of his looks like to now he's talking to those who are really choosing to follow him. Does that make sense? He's, he's moving from, okay, if you're going to follow me, here's what you look like. And now he's going, okay, those of you who are really going to follow me, not just follow me while I'm feeding people, not just follow me while I'm doing all the cool miracles, not just follow me when everything's going well, like the, the fair weather type following. He's now switching to talking to those who are true followers of him, people who are truly following him into his kingdom. He said, I'm going to tell you about your purpose. Look in verse 13. We're going to read it. Verse 13 he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. So Jesus uses two things. He calls us salt and he calls us light. And the first thing he says, he calls you are the salt of the earth. And this phrase, maybe you've heard this phrase before. Sometimes it's used to refer to maybe not as much anymore now as what it used to. Like when you're talking about somebody who's just a good, wholesome person. Man, they're just the salt of the earth. Bless, bless God, right? Bless their hearts. They are salt of the earth type of people. You ever hear somebody use that phrase to describe somebody before? Like it's, but it's not really what that means. But what does Jesus mean? Like what could he be relating to when he says you're the salt of the earth? Is he saying that you're just really good, wholesome people who just do good things? Is that really as deep as he's going to go? I mean, for the for verse 3 to verse 10, he went super deep with them. Here's what a follower of me looks like. So is that really as deep as he's going to go? Hey, just be good people. Is that really all he means by that? When he says that you're the salt of the earth? Is that really the only purpose of a follower of Christ? Is that all we do is be good people? Now look, you're the, what I'm not saying this morning is it's okay to go out and be bad people. Don't leave here going, well, our pastor says we can go be bad people. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, is that all Jesus means by saying you're the salt of the earth? Is that you're good people? I think, honestly, it's where a lot of our churches in America have kind of landed the last hundred years. Just be saved and just be good people. Just be good people. And there's nothing wrong with being good people, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Like, this is a question we have to answer about our life. This is a question I have to answer about my life. Am I being the salt of the earth? Is my church, is your church, is our church being the salt of the earth? Is that really our purpose? Am I living this out in my life? But to answer that, we've got to understand what Jesus meant. So I went to Kroger this morning and I bought a box of salt, okay. Um, this box actually says the ingredient is salt. You realize that some of the things you buy that say salt, it, the ingredient's not salt. It's like something weird. I don't even know what it is. I'm not a chemist, but it's not salt. So anyway, that's a different story of a different time. My brain works in weird ways. But, so I went and bought this salt, all right? Um, and salt was super abundant in Israel. It still is. They could mine salt from the cliffs surrounding the areas. It was, it was everywhere. 
from the Dead Sea. They could mine salt from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is that, that body of water that's inland, but it's super salty and has all kinds of minerals in it. In fact, a lot of people go to there just to bathe in the Dead Sea. And it's because it has so much salt in it, you're, you're super buoyant. So if you ever have a problem floating, you can go to the Dead Sea, you can float like a champ, right? You can like, like win that competition. But they say that if they take three gallons of water from the Dead Sea and they set it out in the sun and it evaporates, they can get one gallon of salt for every three gallons of water from the Dead Sea. That's crazy. So it's not like it was a rare commodity. It was, it was everywhere and they, they had it all over the place. They could even mine it from the marshes around certain lakes. What I thought is interesting is the use of salt hasn't changed since as far back as we can record history. Like we still use salt today for the same thing they were using salt for 3,000 years ago. One of the biggest things we use salt for is to season our food, right? To bring flavor and contrast to our food. Now listen, we don't put salt on food to taste the salt, except for some of you weird people who you do that. But that's not really what we use salt for. Like when we go, okay, so little story. I know I'm going to get in a lot of trouble today. But um, so Manny, when I first met her, she was from Cincinnati. All she liked to eat was chicken, hamburgers, and pot roast, just like basic types of food. And, but now she eats Mexican food. She eats Oriental food. Like I've, I've, I've stretched her, and now we're working on seafood. She'll get there. Um, but we're working on that. But so now we, we, we go to La Pinata. And so I'm going to give a plug to La Pinata. So maybe um, I get some free tacos on Taco Tuesday. I'm talking La Pinata in the camera, just in case you guys didn't know it. Anyway, so Taco Tuesday, dollar tacos all day long. So anyway, so we go there, and they bring the chips out, right? And you get the basket of chips, and you get the salsa. And so when Mandy goes, you guys realize that when the chips come out, they already have salt on them, right? Everybody kind of shake your head. You kind of realize they already have salt on them. But some of you people, um, that's not enough for you, right? Like you're just going to dump even more salt on there. There was a time where we had to get two different baskets of chips because I don't like extra salt on my chips. But Mandy and, and especially Daniel, when he was a little younger, Daniel would take a chip and pour salt on the chip and eat the chip. And I'm like, man, that's just not good, right? So your chips are already salted. So some people like chips and salsa. Some people like chips and salt. Anyway, so we don't put salt on our food to taste the salt. We put salt on our food because it adds contrast and flavor. It brings out flavor of our food. There's nothing like taking a handful of this stuff and going and getting a nice steak from the store and rubbing that bad boy down with salt, sprinkling some pepper on it, putting it on a grill and leaving it there just long enough where it stops moving, right? And then you take it off. If you do your steak more than that, you're not right with God. Okay, so, um, but man, it's the, it, but listen, I don't add salt to my steak to taste the salt. It adds contrast and flavor to what I'm eating. Does that make sense? And the other reason we, the other thing we use salt for is it preserves food. It preserves food. We don't use it as much this way anymore. Um, but when Jesus was talking, they couldn't run down to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy a refrigerator and freezer to store their food, right? And then go down to Walmart and Kroger and buy steaks and lamb and cheese and just throw it in there until they're ready to eat it. They didn't have that option. So if they butchered an animal and they weren't gonna eat the whole animal right away, what they would do is they would take salt and they would rub salt all over it, over and over again. They would build a layer up of salt around this meat. And what happens is that salt would draw out the moisture and then it would form this barrier that microorganisms can't survive in and so the bad stuff couldn't get in your meat and spoil it. And we don't do that a whole lot anymore. Now, some places do. Um, about 100 years ago in our country, we were still doing it. Um, there's a place called Lambert's, which is a great restaurant that's down in Missouri. It's also, I think, down in Alabama. And you can order something called salt pork, all right? 
which is where they've salted that pork down, man. They scrape it off and like harden your arteries like that. It's great stuff. It's really good. Um, but what they would do is they would salt their meat down, and then when they were ready to eat some, they would slice through the layers of salt, get some meat, and then resalt the part they cut off, and then boil that meat to get all the salt out of it so you could actually eat it. Um, and that's how they preserved their food. It would draw out that moisture, and it would make it where it would last longer. So here's the deal. So what is Jesus saying when he says, you are the salt of the earth? Again, remember, he's talking to those who have made that choice to follow him. He's not talking to the people who are just tagging along. He's switched, and he's talking to people now who have made that conscious decision that says, I'm going to follow you. So he's saying, you are salt. You are the salt of the earth. And so what he's saying is by being salt, we're living a life that shows distinction and brings contrast to the lives of those people living around us who are spiritually disconnected from God. We live a life in such a way that it brings contrast to people living around us. Now, that doesn't mean that as a Christian we go around pointing fingers at people. What it means is I'm just going to choose to live my life in such a way where I'm moving beyond just being a good person. And I'm bringing contrast and I'm drawing out a difference in how I'm living versus how everybody else is living around me. Those who are disconnected from God. So our constant pursuit of Christ in our lives stands in contrast to those who are disconnected. It's evident and noticeable. Like if you cook the steak with no salt on it or you cook the steak with salt on it, you're going to notice a difference. Or those of you who like to eat chips, right? No salt versus salt. You're going to know it. What it means is our lives are not diluted. They're not watered down and it's not hidden. Jesus said, he said, you're going to be in the world, but don't be of the world. That I'm going to be around people who are doing things. I'm going to be around people who are saying things. I'm going to be around people who are going places. And it doesn't mean that I judge them. It doesn't mean that I put them down. It doesn't mean that I avoid them and lock myself in a room. What it means is I am in the world, but I don't become the world. I live a life of salt that sets me apart, that causes a difference. And what that does is when people look at our lives and we're living a life of salt, we're the salt of the earth, there's a distinction. It causes a thirst in them, just like salt does. They want to know why. They want to know what's going on. What is different about that person that, that it causes a thirst, it sets out a distinction. And because it's in contrast and visible, it has the potential to preserve the lives and the eternities of others. But how? Salt preserves and adds to the shelf life of the things that it's added to. So by us living a life of purpose, and living our lives intentionally and living our lives on mission about our pursuit of Christ, here's what happens. It gives us the opportunity to bring the life-saving, eternity-altering hope to those who are affected and impacted by the different life that we're living. So if you measure up your life with the life of everybody who does not have a relationship with Jesus, would there be any contrast? Would there be any difference? Would there be something that sets you apart enough to cause other people to thirst for what you have, which opens up opportunities for you to share your faith? Here's what that means. That means we love differently. As a husband, I try to love my wife differently than the world. I try to love my kids differently than the world. I try to love as much as I possibly can. It means that I, I share more. It means that I give more. It means I sacrifice more because I'm trying to live a life of salt. I'm trying to live a life of contrast. 
People take notice and they see a difference. And we have this amazing job and opportunity to speak truth and hope into their lives. But if our lives aren't different, we'll never have the opportunity to speak truth and hope into their life. Another amazing thing about this conversation on salt is that in Leviticus chapter 2, Old Testament, when you brought your meat offering or your grain offering to God, it was required that you brought salt with it. Remember, he's talking to a group of people, and in this group of people on this mountainside that day are Pharisees and religious leaders, and they're going to understand the significance of what Jesus is talking about when he brings up salt. Because they understand, they know all the rules on sacrifices. They know you've got to bring salt with your sacrifice. In fact, if you don't, it's going to be rejected. And he's telling them, look, you've got to bring this salt. And so salt was a sign of a covenant. It was a sign of, of, of a relationship. There was a saying in the Middle East during this time of Jesus that if two people shared a meal together, they would say there's a covenant of salt between us. Which means that there was an agreement and a responsibility of one to another. Now here's what's cool about this. Later on in Romans chapter 12, Paul says that we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. You're starting to see a connection. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. We're to live our life of distinction and separate. People look at it, they can see there's something different about us that causes a thirst for other people. But also this idea of I'm the salt of the earth, that I am to present my body as this living sacrifice, that I'm to bring that along with me and that everything I have is his. It goes all the way back to what we looked at in, in verse 3 of chapter 5, that we are poor in spirit. We have nothing apart from God. We are nothing apart from God. And so I'm going to pour out my life as an offering, as a sacrifice to God. And part of that is me living a life of salt that is separated, that is different, not so I can judge, not so I put down people who don't live like I live, but it causes a thirst for people to see there's something different about that family, there's something different about that guy, there's something different about that girl. What is it? Jesus gives us a contrast. Look at the rest of that verse in verse 3. He says, um, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. One, one uh, commentator says this, salt is a remedy for unsavory meat, but there is no remedy for unsavory salt. That salt is a remedy for unsavory meat, but there is no remedy for unsavory salt. The Christian, get this, the Christian either redeems the world or the world robs the Christian of their impact. That I live my life with the purpose of trying to redeem the world, trying to win a lost world, trying to bring light into the darkness, or the, rob is going to, the world is going to rob me of my impact. Salt, both then and now, had to be stored and used properly. Sometimes they would buy a bunch of salt back then, and because it was taxed, they would try to hide it in different places to keep from paying taxes on it. I don't blame them, but they would try to hide it, right? And sometimes they would throw it on bare floors, like on just on the ground, or they would store it really quickly in places. But if it was stored on bare ground or in the place where sun and rain could get to it, it would lose its saltiness. And at that point, it would not preserve anything, and it wouldn't bring the flavor out in anything. It would be like putting sand on your food. They would not even, here's the deal, they wouldn't even throw it. At that point, if salt lost its saltiness, they wouldn't even throw it in the grass or in the fields because it would ruin the, the fertileness of the soil. So they would take it and they would just throw it out on the streets. Sometimes they would throw it on steps to help bring traction, but that was about it. So the key here, what Jesus is saying in the second part of that verse, is if we're not living a life of contrast, 
what good are we? If I'm living my life that marries up exactly with what the world would live like, if I'm loving like the world loves, if I'm giving like the world gives, if I'm sacrificing like the world sacrifices, then what good am I? If there's not salt in my life, if I'm not set apart and driving people for a thirst for the things of God, then what good am I? What good is a church that has lost its saltiness? Jesus tells us to be the salt of the earth is all about living our lives to show that distinction from sin, causing a thirst in others for the difference that Christ made in our lives. So that's salt. Look at the next verse. Verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. All right. So here's your birthday candle, man. Like you, man, you want to come blow it out? Here we go. Right there. That's all we got. I'm just kidding. No. All right. So here's the deal. Jesus says you're the light of the world. And I think that air is going to blow it out, but you get the idea, right? Check this out. He says, you're the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it out under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So check this out. He says, you're the light of the world. You are salt. You are light. So what he's saying is, he's given the indication that if we're the light of the world, what he's saying is the world is darkness. The world is confused. The world is scared. The world is separated from the very source of light. And Jesus said in, in John chapter 8, verse 12, he spoke to them again. He says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light brings life. And I don't have the light in me. I, don't, I can't generate that light. I am the light, what Jesus talks about, only because I have the light of Christ living in me. I didn't generate the light. It came from him. And it lives in me. And he says, I am the light and I bring the light of life. And so he says, you're the salt of the earth, bringing contrast to sin in the world and helping preserve others who see that. And we're the light of this world, reflecting the light of Jesus in the darkness and revealing where the real life can be found. So real quick, I just want to walk through. There's three things about how he tells us our light needs to shine. The first thing is this. Our light needs to shine noticeably. Look at verse 14. He says, you're the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. He says, it's out there. Even in Jesus' day, before electricity and before uh, streetlights, even a city in the middle of the night, you couldn't hide it. Because even just a few candles in some people's windows or even a few candles or lanterns walking down the street is going to reveal that city in that darkness of the night. There's no way you're going to hide it. It's going to pierce that darkness and it's going to reveal the location of the city. In fact, what Jesus says is a city set on a hill cannot avoid being seen. I want you to get this this morning is this. Is our light for Christ, it must be noticeable and not accidental. Our light for Christ, it has to be noticeable and not accidental. When I was growing up, and they still have it, we have this thing called see you at the pole, where Students will gather around a flagpole once a year to pray for their school and pray for one another. And, and when I was in high, look, I wasn't perfect. I, I wasn't the model teenager Christian by any means. But I remember standing around that flagpole one time and I'm looking around and, I, and it, it shocked me about some of the people who were gathering around holding hands and praying. I remember looking at this one kid and I'm like, really? Like that guy goes to church? That guy's a believer? I, what he said in the locker room yesterday would have made a pirate blush. There is, really? 
Like that took me by surprise. And then I looked around and on the other side was a guy who, yes, like just the day before, was totally bullying and berating and being hateful to another kid. Like just incessantly. And I'm thinking, really? Like you're here today, but yet you, you claim something else. That's what I'm talking about when I say our light needs to be noticeable and not accidental. Like nobody should ever be shocked when they find out that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. <gasps> really, that guy? What? That's kind of awkward, right? Like is it out there or is it not out there? It's got to be noticeable. Would the city of your life, get this, would the city of your life be completely dark in the dead of night? only to be revealed by the light of day and the comfort of a church setting? Would the city of your life be completely unnoticeable in the dark of night, only to be revealed by the light of day and the comfort of a church setting? What does it look like for you and for me? Or are you willing to stand out and be the light of Christ? It's got to be noticeable. second thing Jesus says, our light needs to shine freely. Look at verse 15. He says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. Now here, some of your translations use the word bushel. Some of your translations use the word basket. Here's the idea. Basket and bushel, the original word there, it, it, talking about the, the exact bowl or measurement that the wife would use to measure out that daily amount of wheat to make bread for that day. So it was a tool. Think of it like a measuring cup, okay, that she would measure out exactly how much wheat they needed for that day's bread, and that, so she would measure it out, she'd scrape it off, she'd go inside, and she'd pour it out and start working the dough. It's that kind of basket. And so what Jesus is saying is that it would make no sense to light a candle and put that basket on top of it. Because at best, that, that basket is going to diffuse the light, and at worst, it's going to snuff the flame out. The idea is this. It would be silly, and it would never be done on purpose. Because it would cost them money or time to go make another candle or go buy a candle. So they wouldn't light a candle and then cover it up. That would be pointless. So let's be very real this morning. That moment of salvation when we accept Christ into our life, when we give our life to him, and the light of Christ comes and dwells inside of us. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And now we're the temple of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. It's impossible, get this, it is impossible for a true follower of Christ to have that light lit in their life and to cover it up. Well, I'll, just, I'll just let a little bit shine because, man, it's an awkward conversation at work, so I don't want them to see too much. Or, man, this is getting real, like, pastor's asking us to go on a mission trip. I, I, I don't know. No, man, it's going to take time away from my family. It's going to take time away from my, my fun. It's going, to, it's going to cost me something. I'm just going to, no, I'm not going to share. Jesus says you don't do that. A true follower, if the light of the world and our light is going to shine noticeably, it's going to shine freely. And that's a, that's a hard truth. I get it. Because we're talking about standing out. If we were to shut all the lights off in here this morning and make it completely dark and block all the windows and only this little tiny candle was burning, it would stand out. Wherever you're at in this room, you'd be able to see it. And I wouldn't bring a huge amount of light, but it would be enough that you could see it. It would give you some direction. The idea that it would be silly and it's not done on purpose. It would be a waste of a good candle to cover it up. But what happens? What happens when we do this and we don't even realize it? What happens when we cover it up, but we're not doing it on purpose, it's just life gets in the way. 
So maybe he's talking about maybe in the busyness of the housework, the bushel uh, gets tossed after she dumps the flour and it gets tossed and it just happens to land on top of the candle. Or maybe someone is busy working and they're, and they're standing in front of the candle doing something else and they're blocking the light for the rest of the house. Or maybe in the clutter of the house. I don't know about you, but some houses sometimes get cluttered and stuff just starts to stack up around it. For us, what this means is we have the light for our Christ living in us, but we get really busy. And sometimes we can start stacking things on top. And before you know it, the priority of that light that's living in us is buried underneath stuff. And we never intended it for that to happen. We just lost sight. Before we know it, we blocked out the light that could be bringing life for everyone around us. Jesus said the light takes priority. Here's what he says. Look at it again. He says, no one lights the lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. Here's what Jesus says. He says, no one lights it and sticks it down where something can be thrown over top of it. Jesus says, a candle is lit and it's put on a lampstand. It's elevated up above the busyness of the house, above the busyness of their life, above the busyness of work, above the busyness of clutter and activities and all these things. It's elevated so that no matter what's happening, the light of Christ takes priority. That's what he's saying when no one lights a candle and puts a bushel over it, but it's elevated to freely burn to shine light in the house and everyone that's in there. So practically speaking, let me, let me break it down. Young people, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on you for just a minute because I love you, all right? Here's what that looks like. When you get that place where you're ready to date someone or you're ready to go out with someone, before you ever do, the first conversation needs to be this. Hey, I need to talk to you about my relationship with Jesus and how important he is to me. Because you need to find out do they share that same belief. And if you're thinking in your head right now, well, that's going to be really awkward. What if they don't go out with me? That's the point. <laughs> right? That's the point. And before we, like, so, okay, I'm not going to pick on them all morning, but here's the deal. Growing up, we do the same thing. There's things in our life that we just, it's so easy to put on top. It's so easy to block this out. Our light in Christ does not take second place to sporting events, to the busyness of raising our kids, to the busyness of work or obtaining things, no bushel, no basket. Our wants and desires do not take priority over the eternal that we are faced with every day. No bushel and no baskets. Our busyness and fear do not trump our responsibility to share our faith with our coworkers and neighbors. No bushels and no baskets. No diffusing it. No, I'll let that much come through, but no more. It needs to shine freely. Not covered up by the busyness and the carelessness and the fear. Jesus says our lights have to shine noticeably. They have to shine freely. The last thing is they need to shine boldly. Look in verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is where Jesus moves from giving illustrations about bushels and lampstands and cities. And he talks very directly. He says, let your light shine before others. The light that was given to you at the moment that you gave your life to Jesus, that we possess this light, we take action on this light by connecting our good works with the good news. We take the good works that we want to do to be the salt of the earth and we connect it with the good news of Christ who's living in us. And in the process, we point people to the source of light. It's all about drawing others to the source of light who's Jesus. I love this section about light. Here's the deal. Let me give you a heads up on this. 
there's a concentric circle of influence in this life, in this light. Let me walk backwards through you with it. Number one, in our homes. In our homes. We need to light the candle and elevate it in our home. Nothing takes priority over the light of Jesus in our homes. It's hard. I get it. Having those God conversations with your students when you're busy or you're distracted, I get it. But nothing takes priority over the light of Christ in our homes. We need to elevate it. Then he says in our neighborhoods, the light of the city is able to be seen by everyone in the surrounding area. Does your light stop at your window and your door or does it penetrate into your block in your neighborhood, in your workplace? See, if we just have this elevated in our house, it doesn't do us any good if we don't ever take that out. If you keep your light in your house, parents, listen to me, your parents are going to keep the, your kids are going to keep the light in the house. Parents, if you keep the light in the house, your kids will grow up and keep the light in the house and no more. The third part is in the world. We take our light and let it shine freely, noticeably, and boldly, and it will spread to the ends of the earth. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in the world. I'm going to finish with this right here. Jesus says that you are salt, you are light. There's no conjunction word or. Jesus doesn't say you're salt or you're light. Pick one. <laughs> Whatever makes you happier. Jesus says, he goes through the first chapter, verse 3 through 10. Here's what a believer follower looks like. Then these next few verses, here's what you do. You are salt and you are light. Here's the problem. Say, well, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to be a good person. I'm just going to do this, but I'm never going to share my faith. I'm just going to live this good life. I'm going to be salt. I'm going to live my life that shows contrast to the world, which creates a thirst in the world to find out why, but you never give them the answer for that. That doesn't work. Or if you say, well, you know what, I, I, I just want to talk to people. I'll just talk to people about Jesus, but I'm going to live my life my way. But I'll still share my faith. I'll still invite people to church. I'll still, but I'm going to live my life my way. That doesn't work because your words and your actions don't measure up. Jesus says you are salt and you are the light. Just being salt and show the distinction in how you live versus how others live, create that thirst without ever showing them the answer, doesn't work. Sharing your light. Without your lifestyle matching up, doesn't work either. Salt and light, it's what we do. We found out who we are, now we know what we do. Are you living a life of distinction? Families, are you lighting the candle in your home? Are you opening the windows and the doors and teaching your kids and making yourself even take that light into your community? Are you stacking things up on top? Clutter and busyness getting in the way? Are you living your life like everyone else and there's really no distinction or contrast in the way you're living? What I love about this passage is we're hearing straight from Jesus who we are and what we do. So the question then becomes for us to examine our lives and go, where, do I, where am I at? Where am I at when it comes to being the salt of the earth? Where am I at when it comes to being the light of the world? Maybe there's some areas we need to work on. I know in my life there are. I know in my life I I never would intentionally cover up the light, but I know it's very easy even in the ministry to all of a sudden stuff gets cluttered around it. And it's good stuff. It's not bad stuff. But the light isn't really free to shine. And I know in my life there's days, man, where 
I struggle just like you do. That I look like, more like I'm of the world than I do like I'm separated from it. Salt and light. Super simple illustration that Jesus gave. What are we going to do about it? Church, let me have you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment this morning. We're going to have a time of response this morning. And what I, here's what this means. Sometimes we dive into God's word and sometimes it can be painful. Sometimes it can be uncomfortable, especially as the Holy Spirit works in our life. And we might not really know how to handle it. We might not know how to respond. But listen, if God worked in your heart this morning, there's a reason for that. It's not me. I can't work in your heart. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I, I don't have that kind of power. So this morning, if you're here and some things might feel like they might be a little bit uncomfortable, maybe God's revealing some things to you this morning as we're talking about it. Maybe you're really struggling with, man, there's things that are blocking your light. Maybe you're really struggling. Man, I, there's some things that I'm doing that if somebody was to measure my life up with the world, there wouldn't be any distinction. So maybe there's something this morning God's like, I just want you to get rid of that. Let me work in your heart about that. It doesn't make you a bad person. You know what it makes you? It makes you human. But if we leave here today after hearing the truth of what a follower of Christ does and we don't respond to it, that's on us. This is not a, this is not a time of, of, of judgment. It's an amazing thing and a beautiful thing when God works through the Holy Spirit in our life about something. Because it means he's pursuing us and he loves us. And he wants to use you to reach someone. He wants to use you to make an impact. So what does that look like for you? Where are you at when it comes to salt? Where are you at when it comes to light? This morning, maybe it's time for us to move some of the clutter and leave here with our light shining so bright. Maybe this morning it's time for us to live like we really are the salt of the earth. Parents, what does that look like for you? Maybe this morning, right where you stand, you can just dedicate yourself and you, as a family, as a husband and wife, that we're going to light that candle. We're going to elevate it in our house and nothing is going to take priority over the light of Christ in our home. And we're not going to stop there. Then we're going to train our kids how to take that light into a lost and dying world. Believer, what are you going to do this morning? God's done in your heart today. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to worship one more time. And I'm going to be down here in the front. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to introduce you to the Savior. Maybe you're here this morning like, man, I don't even have a relationship with Jesus. Like, I am disconnected from God because I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this morning, I would love to be able to introduce you to him and show you how your life does have purpose and forgiveness and you can have a brand new life through him. Whatever God's worked in your heart this morning, will you just allow him to continue to work? And no, you don't have to come forward. You can pray right there where you're at in your seat. The goal is not what you do on the outside. The goal is how you change on the inside when you walk out these doors. Ask God to break your heart. Ask God this morning to reveal to you what are things that are blocking your light. Reveal to you what are some things in your life you need to add salt to. What is it this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. God, you are so powerful. And you are so holy and you are
are so righteous, but at the same time, you are so loving and so forgiving, so merciful and gracious that we can't even understand. We can't even comprehend it. But God, I know this morning, because I know in my own life, there's areas in my own life that I've allowed clutter to block the light of our family, uh, of you living through our family. I know there's things at times that the light comes off the lampstand and it gets put away. God, forgive me for those times that I have failed you. God, I pray right now that you're even working in the hearts of your people this morning, that we will be a church full of people with our lights shining brightly, that we're a city set on a hill, that our lights are shining freely, they're noticeable, it's boldly shining for you, and that God, things in our life that you will bring to our mind even now, that you're saying, I need you to get rid of this, I need you to work on this, I need you to let me give you the power to overcome this in your life, that God, you will have your work and your will in our life, and that we will be meek, humble before you and respond to your working in our life. God, we pray that you use this church in an amazing way to reach this area, but also reach around the world. But it starts in our homes. It starts in me. God, we pray that you're glorified and you're praised in everything that happens this morning, even after we leave here. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me this morning and worship? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you have any questions about Morningstar Baptist Church or today's message, visit MorningstarDayton.org and choose Contact Us.